Hi, everyone. This is Robot Friends, the podcast that actively harms its audience. I have with me today Joel Gruse, uh, a noted data scientist, uh, best known for his groundbreaking work in the famous FizzBuzz problem. But today we are going to be talking about schools and, and models of schools and educating perhaps precocious and, and also just generally youth. Um, Joel, welcome. How are you doing today? I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, I, I think you're probably quite a lot more renowned and, and also dignified than I am. So uh, really, really, I should be thanking you. I think that's <laughs> probably the first time anyone's ever called me dignified, but, but I'll take well, it. Well, you know, relative terms. <laughs> so, so yeah, so just, just framing this, um, I mean, you, you have a daughter is, um, she's, she's in like mid elementary school years. Um, and fourth grade, fourth grade. Yeah. Um, I knew that I wasn't sure how much to reveal. Um, and, and, you know, so, so she's, she's going to a sort of a non mainline school. I, I'm not sure that's quite the correct terminology for that, but, um, that's, that's of interest to, of course, my wife and I, because we're, we're about to have a daughter she's doing in maybe three weeks or so. And both of us are a little bit skeptical about sort of the, the standard educational model that's, that's implemented in, in the United States. And, um, I, I think that's also sort of a, a general topic of interest among, you know, our people in our, our Twitter group, many, many of whom are pretty, I don't know if I'd say well-educated, but at least excessively educated and, and many of whom have pretty strong feelings about, about how to educate ge children generally about the way that schools are structured. And so, I mean, at least myself, I'm very interested in hearing from somebody who's, who's actually poked at this problem. A lot of us are younger and don't actually have any hands-on experience with, you know, how, how to navigate these sorts of structures with kids, but, um, we are very interested. So I'm, I'm, I guess that's, that's going to comprise most of what we're going to talk about today, I think. Yeah. So, I, I mean, just to set the table, I'm extremely overeducated. Uh, I went to, you know, a good public high school, took all the AP classes, went to college, got a college degree, went to grad school, was in a PhD program, dropped out, worked a few years, went back to grad school to a different PhD program, dropped out again. So like, I'm extremely overeducated. And my wife uh, is also extremely overeducated. So we're like, um, you don't even want to know how many master's degrees we have between the two of us. It's, <laughs> it's a lot. Um, and so, you know, the thing is, is that I don't think either of us really looking back enjoyed school the way it was. So I was the kid who did really well in school um, because I was really good at playing the game of here's what the teacher wants to see and here's what's going to be on the test and here's what sh I should put in my essay in order to get a good grade on it. Um, and so I came out of school kind of being this, you know, teacher pleaser kind of check all the boxes uh, person who was really into getting good grades and not really into uh, learning. Um, which is really unfortunate, I think. Um, and so, you know, I went through college, I did pretty well in college. Uh, but I also really did kind of, in many ways, the bare minimum I could do to appear to be doing well. Um, this funny story where, you know, after I dropped out of math grad school, I actually 
took up reading as like a, a real hobby where, where I would read, um, you know, just, just for fun and just things that were interesting. And, and, and so I went and I, I read, uh, I think it was Robert Wright's The Moral Animal, which was I think mm. the, first, the first book I ever read about, you know, evolutionary psychology and some of these ideas. Nice book. Me, me too. That's, that's really interesting. I, I read that when I was maybe 15 or 16. I just picked it up in the library and it, it had a pretty significant impact on what I chose to do with the rest of my life. But yeah, please go on. Um, so I, I reached out to, you know, one of my best, one of my best friends from college, who was one of, you know, the more thoughtful people I knew from college. Um, and, and I said, you should read this book. It's great. And he said to me, he said, that book was assigned reading for a class that we took, but you took that class pass fail. So you never read it. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, shit, um, you know, you know, so like, that's, um, like there were books that I should have read in college because I read them after college and found them super interesting. Um, and I didn't read them because when I was in college, I wasn't interested in like learning things. I was interested in getting good grades and building up a transcript and being a good candidate for grad school and so on and so forth. And, and so like when I look back on my life and I think, what are the things that I really learned and what are the things that I found really interesting? And, you know, what are the things that I do for my career and what are the things that I'm really good at? Almost none of them are things that I learned in school. Um, and so coming to that realization for me was, was really powerful. Um, and I started to ask myself, okay, you know, I was in, you know, elementary, junior, high school for 12 years of my life. Did I really learn 12 years worth of things? Was it really the best possible use of my time to be like sitting at, at a desk for 12 years being, you know, lectured at and doing worksheets? Um, and, and, and I found it very difficult to... Uh, make the case that it was. I, I was like, you know what, for, for the amount of stuff I learned, I could have probably spent, you know, an hour or two a day on that for those 12 years and done really interesting things the rest of my time. And, uh, you know, my wife, I, I don't think she is as, uh, I don't think she feels as strongly about this as I do, but she, she sees things the same way. Um, and so, we lived in downtown Seattle and my daughter was attending a daycare down there, daycare slash preschool. Um, there's a lot of daycare slash preschools in downtown Seattle because they're in office buildings. People drop their kids off, go to work, pick them up. Uh, huh. we, actually, we actually lived down there, uh, but it turns out there's no schools in downtown Seattle, only those daycares and preschools. So we kind of had to move um, for schooling reasons. And so that allowed us to look and say, what is the school that we want to um, send our kid to? And now philosophically, uh, I would say we're mostly unschoolers. So unschooling is this idea of, it's what it sounds like, basically. It's my kid's not going to school and she's not, and it's not like homeschooling. I mean, it is homeschooling, but it's, we're not going to imitate school at home by doing worksheets and textbooks and sitting in a fake classroom and things like that. It's my kid's going to really like follow her interest and decide what she wants to do and things like that. So, um, we kind of gravitated towards that approach. Um, but then, you know, we also both work a lot. So neither of us could really stay home and manage that. Uh, but there is this philosophy of school uh, called Sudbury education, which is uh, sometimes it's called democratic free schooling, um, self-directed education. But it's basically a school where uh, the kids basically do what they want all day. Um, and that's the extent of it. And you know, the teachers will, they don't even have teachers, they have staff and the staff will like organize activities for them if they're asked and will help them out if they're asked. But otherwise the, the kids do what they want all day. Um, and so there's, you know, 
a handful of these schools all over the world, really. Um, and there's one out in the suburbs of Seattle. So we've moved out to the suburbs and uh, my daughter went there for kindergarten, first, second, third grade. Um, it was good in some ways, less good in other ways. Uh, when COVID hit, that school went to this, um, you know, it went to virtual school like most schools do. Um, mm. But, you know, people complain about, oh, my kid's virtual school is terrible because they just sit there uh, and the teacher lectures at them and they have to pay attention to the screen. Um, I get that. That does sound terrible. But then when you have this school where kids do what they want all day, what does that mean to take it virtual? Um, I was and, really curious about that. Um, well, last spring, what it meant was they just set up some Zoom calls a couple of times a week and kids could hop on and do what they wanted. Um, and of course, my kid didn't feel like hopping on. And so uh, she was basically nominally attending the school, but not really attending the school. So what we ended up doing was this fall, we actually did not enroll her in the school. Um, and we decided to do kind of unschooling. Um, like since we're both working from home, we can kind of swing it a little bit. We did that for about um, a month or so uh, and realized that her time was being spent extremely unproductively. So <laughs> lots of Minecraft. Minecraft is pretty productive. I, I don't mind that. Lots of YouTube, lots of Roblox, things like that. Lots of Netflix, uh, which is maybe less productive, especially watching the same shows over and over again. And so we started looking around. And in particular, like the, the social isolation was really getting to her. Um, and so we started looking around uh, as to how can we get her more social activity. And we ended up um, enrolling her in this really curious, it's this online, let's say, world school that's it's a startup. And it's very like startup e, yeah. And so, what does the school entail? So the only mandatory thing is that every morning she has to go to essentially a half hour stand up meeting. Um, <laughs> they don't call it that; it's called a check in. But it's basically your your daily stand up, um, where everyone they play games, they talk, they they plan. Every week they have to make a schedule for here's what I'm going to do this week. So it's really this, you know, doubling down on this self-directed uh, education. And once a month, she has to give a, uh, a a PowerPoint presentation on any topic she wants. But she has to put together a presentation and just give it. Um, on top of that, they have clubs. They have a Minecraft club. They have a reading club. They have a filmmaking club that are all like virtual. Um, and they have these little like nano degrees. They call them nano degrees and boot camps for like you know, learning to code in Scratch or making computer games or how to make your own audio book. And then a few of them, again, because it's startup year, are like really like learn to hustle, learn to become a YouTube celebrity, which I won't let her do um, and, <laughs> and things like that. But it, it, it's a it's a funny little setup that gets her a little bit more structure um, and socializing than uh, she was getting before I signed her up for that. And it's really interesting because it's really like worldwide. So all their clubs, they basically have like two versions of them, one per hemisphere um, because of timing mm. reasons. So there's yeah. like uh, America's Minecraft club and then an Asia EU Minecraft club. And like her daily check-in is like eight kids. And, you know, we're in Seattle. There's one kid in Ohio. There's one kid in Peru. There's one kid in Mexico. There's one kid in California. So like it's really all over the place. Um, that, so, that sounds amazing. What, what, what's it called, if I'm asked? It's called Galileo. Okay. Yeah. It sounds like, uh, I mean, it almost sounds like battle school, but 
you know, much, much friendlier. Uh, yeah. Fewer like shower murders, but yeah. <laughs> okay. That that's cool. And, um, how, how is she taking to that? I mean, it, it's honestly, I didn't know that this was a thing and it, it sounds pretty idyllic in a lot of ways. Um, she's taking to it reasonably well. Her personality is such that she doesn't like giving these PowerPoint presentations once a month. And so, um, it, it's good to get her out of the comfort zone like that. Um, and if left to her own devices, she would not sign up for any of these clubs or nano degrees. So I have to kind of twist her arm. So, you know, the, the Sudbury philosophy and the real hardcore unschooling philosophy is things are purely child-led period, right? Kids will eventually want to learn to read. And so they'll learn to read and kids will eventually want to learn math and things like that. Um, yeah. And so I went along with that for quite a while. Um, eventually, especially when she was su- when she was sitting at home all day after COVID, um, I started to feel like she should be using her time more productively. You know, maybe instead of eight hours a day of Minecraft, she could do six hours a day of Minecraft and an hour, hour and a half of things that I consider productive or, or I guess add some variety. So over the summer, we started doing Khan Academy. Um, we ran into the problem that Khan Academy math is extremely boring. Like, I don't know if you've looked at it, it's super boring. Um, and it uses like new math in certain ways where it's like, we're going to teach you some random technique and now you need to learn the random technique. And is that, is that new math? Like I am a little bit familiar with the version they tried to implement in the seventies, which is like, all right, we're going to start out with set theory or number theory or something like that. And like, that's, that's just where you're going to go to learn arithmetic or, or is it new? No, math it's like not that. that. And I, I'm not really using the term in a technical sense or in the correct way. It's more okay. like, here's a stupid trick for doing long division that oh. we're not really going to explain it to you. We're just going to like teach you the mechanics and make you memorize the mechanics. Um, yeah. And stuff like that, that, but even apart from that, the, the it's not very engaging. So after a while, we pulled the plug on that and we tried instead, there's this thing called Beast Academy. So there's this organization called Art of Problem Solving that basically does, they do kind of like hyper math enrichment classes for the sort of kids who want to do like math Olympiad and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they also introduced this kind of third, fourth, fifth-ish grade program called Beast Academy where... Uh, it's actually, it's pretty hard, uh, but it's also very like systematic and well thought out and creative. Um, and I, I feel like she gets a lot out of that. I make her do a lesson a day and, and she really resents me for it. So, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, she, she seems really, I mean, you know, she's your daughter. She seems really precocious and, and, you know, some of the things that you've talked about doing in Minecraft are, are, I mean, seem I'm just like, just like great learning, I guess, for, for that kind of systematic mathematical development. Um, okay. But so, so does she, so she enjoys it. Does she, would you say she enjoys that kind of thinking more in Minecraft than, than in Beast Academy? And, and what's the, what's the difference? Is it just more gamified in Minecraft? No, I would say in Beast Academy. So Beast Academy is not really a game. It's like, a story and a comic book around learning math concepts and solving math problems, but it's not, it's, it's not a game. Like even though it's called Beast Academy, it's, it's not a game. It's really like, here's a lesson. Okay. Now take a quiz on it. Um, But what they do is that some of the problems are slightly open-ended 
and, and now I'm struggling to think of it, but it could be like she just finished a lesson on perfect squares. So they, they had like a lesson on perfect squares and it would ask stuff like, um, you know, of the following numbers in this table, which of them can be written as a sum of three perfect squares in the most different way? Things like that, right? Where it's like, yeah. really, you have to understand what perfect squares are and you have to come up with like a systematic way of investigating that. So it's not just like do this long division, but it's really like a little bit more open-ended. Um, so, so that's kind of cool. In Minecraft, you know, some of the more analytical stuff is especially around you know, building redstone circuits and redstone contraptions. And she's a mm -hmm. little bit into that sometimes, but a, a lot of it is uh, she just likes, she likes accomplishing things. So she likes, uh, you know, going mining and finding diamonds. She gets very excited to find diamonds and she gets very excited to be able to construct diamond armor. And she gets very excited to be able to enchant things and things like that. So she's, okay. she, she gets more hyped about the actual like in-game achievements um, than she does about, you know, the building cool circuits and stuff, which is what I would get more excited about. She's also, you know, and she goes hot and cold on this, but we found this uh, Minecraft server for kids that's like heavily moderated and is open for four hours a day. So for a while, she was literally spending four hours a day on this Minecraft server with all these kids. And it's, you're not allowed to tell people your real names or your age or anything. So she has all these friends who also log on to the server each day, but all she knows is their like Minecraft username. She doesn't know anything else about them. So it's this weird, like social thing for a nine year old. I, I kind of love that. I mean, it, how, what, what kind of a society is developing there? It, it seems like a, I mean, it's, it, it feels like something, it feels a little bit like Lord of the Flies, except, you know, one moderated and two like in Minecraft. And I imagine the outcome is quite a lot different than, well, that. Um, yeah. So, I mean, they have a, they have a pretty firm, no griefing rule that people violate and then get, you know, chastised for. <laughs> so uh, they try and keep it not too much like, Lord of the Flies, but there is this, th so one thing that I sort of don't like about it is this whole um, appeal to the moderators to fix things. Um, so, you know, like people steal things from each other's chests. Like someone stole the diamonds from my chest. I'm like, well, you know, don't leave diamonds unprotected in your chest, but she's like, no, I'm going to appeal to the moderator to replace them and give them back or. Oh, know, interesting. Someone, okay. so, so, someone killed my wolf. I was like, oh, well, you know, uh, that's too bad. Go get a new one. She's like, no. Uh, so there's this culture and maybe it's her, maybe it's everyone of like appealing to the moderators to fix things, which is maybe not uh, ideal to learn, but that's a, I think that's a small part of it. Um, they do a lot of creative stuff there. They'll have like build battles and say today's theme is Christmas. So let's have a contest and build things on Christmas. And they have all these PVP games. They have like among us in Minecraft and. Oh, wow. Bed wars, which is kind of like capture the flag and. A bunch of, there's there's a lot of stuff that goes on there cool so okay um i i actually could keep talking about this at length um but maybe maybe it would make sense to to like pivot a bit back more toward the the main um the main theme so so i'm curious hearing about all of this um you know someday the pandemic is going to be over probably um what 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 do you think you're going to do then um i mean it it seems like you could go back and, and re-enroll her in, in Sudbury. Does that, is that something that's appealing to you or, or has sort of being away from that structure left you in a place where you're, you're looking at, you know, even, even more of these like, um, 
kind of decentralized solutions? That, that That's a hard question. And it's something that we think about quite a bit. Um, from my point of view, from a pure education standpoint, let's say, I prefer uh, what she's doing now. Um, I think it's more productive than, you know, at Sudbury, she would play dolls or play fairies or play make-believe is okay. But I think what she's doing now is more productive uh, for the most part. Although she's also really into Hades, which is a, a different funny story. But uh, <laughs> I don't know how I feel about a nine-year-old playing Hades. She beat it before, <laughs> she beat it before I did. And she would, then, wow. she, then she lorded it over. But we both play in God mode. So she died a lot of times and got to like 80%. Uh, <laughs> playing roguelikes at a 12th grade level. Okay. Anyway, that, that's neither here nor there. So uh, the, the one thing is, is that the social isolation, like I said, has been really hard on her. Right. And so she, I think would really like to go back to the Sudbury school less because of the actual activities and learning that goes on there. Um, and more because of that's where her friends are. Although none of her friends are actually going there when it's remote this year, they're all doing homeschooling or something else. Um, and, and so, you know, the, the other thing layered on top of this is obviously I'm working from home. My wife's working from home. Uh, what's that going to look like? Well, you know, once COVID ends, am I still going to be working from home? Uh, is my wife still going to be working from home? Because if we're not, then our hands are tied. But if we are, or are mostly, you know, if I can get away with going into the office once a week or something, um, then we can swing it a bit more and maybe, you know, get her the social interaction separately from the school. Uh, it's a little bit unfortunate that, you know, school is how kids get social interaction. And therefore, if you take them out, you have to really work to get them social interaction. But, you know, we can do that. Um, like I said, I, I feel like she's learning a lot You doing the things we're doing, the Beast Academy. I also recently, uh, I bought this book on philosophy for kids. And uh, in addition to the math, I make her read a chapter of the philosophy for kids, but each chapter is like three pages, but I make her read a chapter yeah. tonight and then discuss it with me. Um, you know, more recently, I've also gotten her into podcasts. And so she listens to a lot of kids podcasts now, um, which is its own kind of interesting thing. But, yeah. but I guess, you know, to pivot back to some of my concerns about Sudbury, one of the things that was always pitched to me as the value proposition of this kind of self-directed education is that kids will learn how to cope with boredom and kids will learn how to kind of persist through things and, you know, meet their own needs um, and become like self-reliant in these ways. Um, and what I found, and she went to the school for four years, um, and I found that that really wasn't happening. Um, you know, she, she was not good at coping with being bored and she is not great at persevering through hard problems. So like, like I said, some of these beast Academy problems are really hard and, you know, she'll get really like frustrated to the point of tears with them. Um, and she needs to somehow get past that. Um, and I don't feel like, you know, the Sudbury model built those skills in her in a, in a way that I kind of had hoped it would. Yeah. I, I wonder about that. I mean, thinking back to thinking back to myself as a fourth grader and, and, you know, I don't, I don't know that I'm a good model for, children at all, but also I don't really know what a good model for children at all is because I, I mean, like I have myself and, you know, my daughter's not even born yet. Um, but just thinking back to myself in, in fourth grade, like I could definitely spend huge quantities of time on problems when I was at, when I was that age, but 
you know, it had to be really specifically interesting things to me. You know, like I could I could burn days playing SimCity or or you know building maps in Warcraft 2, but you're you know, like sit down and read the entire Lord of the Rings, but you know, working through math problems, I was I was pretty limited. Um and I wonder how much that how much of that do you think is just being a well, okay, so I'm talking about the level, like you know, can I work through a hard problem versus like, am I getting better at working through hard problems? And so you're maybe more concerned about that. Um, I guess I'm more concerned about the attitude itself and sort of the like emotion attached to it. Right. Um, if we're doing math every night, regardless whether some of the problems are hard, you would hope that that wouldn't end in tears. Um, you know, sure. it, it's hard okay, like, that's fine. Things are allowed to be hard. And it's fine to get it wrong. And it's fine to struggle with it for a long time. But, you know, hopefully, there's no there's no real need to to cry over it, you would hope. But yeah. So, okay, Um, especially given the the utter lack of consequences to getting it wrong. (laughs) Yeah, right. Oh, so so I mean, a thing, another thing that I've been thinking about, just just like kind of stepping back and looking at a, I don't know, kind of a broader, broader picture of educational policy is, is like, all right, so we're we're kind of weird, maybe in different ways, but like, be, and, and maybe everybody is weird, but I, I think there's probably some clustering around, you know, I think there, there's probably some mode that that were deviated from and you know just thinking about schooling generally you know a lot of a lot of us are pretty skeptical about the the sort of cookie cutter public school system that exists and i i wonder about well you know heterogeneous treatment effects um how how would something like sudbury you know be and how much of an improvement would Sudbury be, f- you know, across this entire distribution of kids, whatever that happens to be? I mean, I can I can see a lot of kids thriving outside of this this framework as it exists, but you know, how how appropriate is this as a, a general model? Do you so think that's a good question? Um, so the, you get some real like selection effects. If I were to like do a real caricature of who are the kids who go to Sudbury school. It's a mix of people who are kind of their parents are unschooling true believers, let's say, who who think a lot about you know what should education look like. Uh, so that's some of the kids. Uh, some of the kids are there because their parents are kind of like hippies, um, and they're like, yeah, you know, I'd rather my kid run around all day than sit in a room all day. Um, yeah. And then some of the kids are there because like they really did poorly in uh, regular school. And they washed out, got expelled, something or another. And this is sort of a kind of, okay, we'll try anything for this kid kind of approach. Um, and, and so, you know, one, one thing you don't see um, is you don't see, it's not the same demographic that you would see of like kids going to say an elite private school or, or something, right? It's just, it, it's totally a, a different set of kids. And so that makes it a little bit hard to draw these kind of, broad conclusions. Um, but what, what I would say is this, do I think that Sudbury would probably be better for most kids than sitting in Seattle public schools? I do think that. Um, I, I think the kids who 
really get a lot out of the public school system would probably manage to get a lot out of uh, anywhere and would end up being kind of more well-adjusted and more self-directed and freer to pursue their own interests. And I think the kids who don't get a lot out of the public schools, um, they might not get a lot out of Sudbury either, but they probably, you know, have a better time. Yeah. Yeah. One, so one, one other alternative is, I mean, you mentioned, you know, sort of elite private schools. Is, is that something that you had considered for your daughter? Um, and, and I mean, if, if you did, you know, clearly you didn't do it, but it, it is not. So, you know, so there's a couple things going on. Um, one elite private schools are closer in a lot of ways to public schools than they are to anything else. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, pedagogically they're pretty similar culturally, even uh, they're, I think they're pretty similar in terms of like, what are, what are the mores? What are the, what do the people think about? Uh, I, I had a, I had a, when I worked at AIT, we had an intern, um, very, very bright girl. Um, and she had gone to a very elite, uh, private school in the Seattle area, like probably one of the most elite private schools in the Seattle area. Um, and this private school was the one where, um, I believe Jonathan Haight came there to be, is that your parents' name? Jonathan Haight? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. He came there to give a lecture. Um, and they basically like tried to protest him off the stage because he was too much of a crime thinker. And now, platforming at a college level. Amazing. I exactly. Um, so, you know, r- real precocious kids, but <laughs> like to me, in my mind, that's how the elite private schools around here are too. Um, and so uh, this is, this is going to sound like super weird um, given that I'm like not a religious person in any way, shape or form. But if I had to send my kid to a school, I would look very hard at some of these like classical Christian education places because yeah. they're doing like, great books and study the Bible. Like, I don't know, like that in some ways that seems better, even though I don't believe in any of that stuff. Yeah. uh, That's actually an interesting sentiment. I mean, I'm I'm probably going to talk about this um, just, just more generally with, with a few other people, but I mean, the older I get, you know, I'm, I'm not religious myself, but when I think about how I want my kids to be raised, I don't know. I I got a lot out of Catholic school and, and maybe the best quarter of my life was when when my town was destroyed by a flood and we, we relocated to Minneapolis and um, there was a Catholic school that took me in for the last few months of the year. And I mean, it was a great education and um, I, I, I don't know, I still look back on that fondly. And, you know, I think about like, you know, everything apart from, you know, like STEM education and, and reading and analytics, like, you know, what kind of, how, how is school shaping my, going to shape my child as a human being. And I mean, I think there's a lot of value in, in some of the, I, I expect there might be a lot of value in some of the kind of more moral or cultural instruction that takes place at a school like that. Uh, maybe, 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 but, but here's, here's the thing about my kid, like temperamentally, she's a moral worrier. Um, and oh, so, no. and so I don't know that she needs a, a school that kind of encourages that or exacerbates that. Um, yeah. So, so that aspect is less appealing to me. Like she's, uh, she's a very, uh, she's a very grounded, moral little kid. And and if anything, I would say she spends too much time worrying about, um, 
let's say moral quandaries. Maybe she'll be a philosopher when she grows up or something. Yeah. Okay. That that's actually really good information. I mean, you know, my my wife is, I is still a little bit maybe over scrupulous, and and as a child, she definitely was, and and maybe maybe having more exposure to that or pressure from that angle is would be a bit too much. That's good to think about. Um, yeah. Okay. But no, I, I mean, I find that compelling. I, I, I think I, it was going, going to a religious school was good for me. I, I, I went from first through sixth grade and, you know, it didn't make me religious, but it did make me think a lot about morality and, and sort of more a, a broader framing for my life. For, for, I, I mean, for me to, to draw a broad caricature, if someone's going to sit her down in a chair and make her study something, I would rather it be like, the new Testament than ethno mathematics or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, okay. That's, that's pretty interesting. And and it's the, and I, I mean, I guess this is kind of tilting toward culture war stuff, but that's, I mean, that's a concern for us too. Like I, I have a, pretty you know i i would like our daughter to be a good person in in some sense of that and i i guess by that i mean someone who's thoughtful about what it means to live a good life and somebody who's capable of you know being reflective and you know considering what what she's even doing at any point in time um and i i also just have a visceral horror at the idea of you know, my, my kid being subjected to what feels quite a lot like propaganda over, over the course of, over the course of her life. And I'm, I'm not worried that she would necessarily be turned into some kind of a political fanatic just because I remember some of the, you know, attempts at, um, indoctrination that happened in my life and, and how I responded to them. And I, I mean, it was not in the way that the, the, um, indoctrinators might've hoped, but, but even still, I, I think I really resented even at the time and definitely in retrospect being pressured like that. And I don't know. Um, I mean, maybe, maybe it's just not possible to have an education without some of that, no matter, no matter where you are. And, you know, even, even if we were to homeschool entirely and, and be like, Hey, don't trust anybody. You can't trust these assholes. Then, you, you know, I mean, that's, that's kind of indoctrination too. I'll tell you, if you let your kid watch Netflix or Amazon Prime or whatever, they'll get exposed to it that way. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's it's interesting thinking about this, and and just who, definitely who I was growing up, and and I think probably to an extent my wife too. Although you know, I have less firsthand experience there. You know, I um. I I was maybe an inversion of you as a kid where I did very well in school. Um, I don't think a lot of it was to please my teachers. I remember specifically in elementary school and also to an extent in high school, you know, just blazing through my my work as quickly as possible so I could get back to reading, which is what I really wanted to be doing at any point in time. And 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 I think I carried that through at least through high school, probably to an extent through college. Although, but at that point, I was getting tired. Where I did genuinely want to learn as much as possible, and you know, where where class was something that facilitated that, great. But but otherwise, it was all of this just free form hobbyist reading at home. Like you know, I go to the library and bring home a stack of books just just because it seemed like things that I should know, and I was really really passionate about that. Um, 
That's another thing that I actually struggle with a lot is that my daughter does not like reading. Like she's actually, a, she's a very good reader and she's very good at reading, but she doesn't read books for pleasure and she doesn't like reading books for pleasure. And my wife and I are both like huge readers. And, and so yeah. I, I, I struggle with, you know, is she just a different person and I should just let her be, or is this something I really should try and help her develop? And, and I really go back and forth on this. Yeah. Does, I mean, like, does she like reading fiction? Uh, she, she will listen to fiction audiobooks sometimes, but in general, she doesn't, uh, no, not really. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I definitely don't, I don't know. I don't know how I would respond to that. If my, if my daughter were interested in taking in information in other ways, it, it feels like such a, a central feature of my youth that I don't know. Maybe I would just be confounded by that, which, which maybe it's just a challenge of having a kid who who's very different from you in some way that, that you don't understand. And you have to try and figure out, you know, how to help them grow in a way that is not parallel to your own life. But I mean, she'll she'll read, you know, the Minecraft wiki and she'll Google for things to find out answers to questions and things like that. So, uh, yeah. But books yeah, somehow doesn't do it for her. Oh, do you, how do you, how do you feel about screen time? I, um, I mean, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time on the computer as a kid, but maybe it was a much less child-friendly sort of a, sort of a medium back then. I mean, you know, I, I hopped, I remember getting on the internet and when I was maybe seven and it, you know, at that point my, my parents had a gopher account. And so, you know, I could sort of struggle through these, the, you know, you know this content that was sort of geared toward you know, professors and college students, but it wasn't that interesting to me. And, you know, later on I could do things like play SimCity and even that wasn't the same as like dedicated child content, which at that point I remember being sort of mediocre. Um, Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I've gone through several phases on this. Um, When my daughter was born, I got rid of my TV um, very deliberately. Um, Yeah. And that turned out to be, in some ways more for me than for her before that I watched a lot of TV and, and stupid shit, like whatever USA network was showing like old episodes of monk or SVU or just dumb stuff. Star Wars yeah. movies for the 30th time. Such a waste of time. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And when we got rid of that TV, I've like, I, I just lost the habit. No, I can't really watch TV. I don't have any interest in it. And I, I, I replaced that void in my life with, with Coursera and my career trajectory, like took this, you know, a hockey stick curve. So that's been, that's also oh, been wow. great for me. But yeah. Yeah. When she was about, let's say one, we had an old iPad sitting around the house. And so we downloaded some like baby iPad games and gave it to her. And she would just like sit there and like get sucked into it and stare at it and push the buttons and like veg out. And I was like, it can't be good for a one-year-old to veg out like that in front of a screen. Um, and so we took it away and we did basically almost no screen time from let's say until she was about five. So we did no screen time for the first few years. Very occasionally we would watch some videos on like the tablet or something, but that was about it. Um, And then when she was five, she started school. We had some like real challenges uh, that are neither here nor there. And and so to help her adjust, we ended up getting her like a kid's Kindle fire um, and she could watch some videos on that and she could play some games on that. Um, we got Minecraft on that and then she started using that. Um, and then we started like watching movies together, but we were all huddled around a laptop screen, which sucked. So I bought a TV again. Um, and you know, over time, everything just sort of fell apart and now she's probably, uh, on 
one screen or another for you know 12 hours a day so yeah oh yeah man i i guess i'm anticipating that like starting out with really good intentions about you know how to how to manage screen time for for our daughter and and then also just you know realistically looking at other parents and seeing just how you know eventually that that falls by the wayside just because of pragmatics yeah i mean the other thing is with covid right like i'm working all day my wife's working all day and so like she's got to do something all day and if i tell her you can't do screen time and you know i could force her to read books or something but that would be probably pretty cruel on my part um unless we went through some like big mental shift so she you know the last few weeks she's really into roblox um she spent some of her allowance buying Robux, which I don't know how I feel about that either, but it is her allowance. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, you know, lots of YouTube, lots of uh, Netflix, lots of Amazon Prime Video. So, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, our, our situation is going to, our situation is going to be a bit different with, um, with, you know, my, my wife is probably just going to stay home and, and I think also we'll have additional kids which which might sort of put a twist on things i i wonder if having more kids would lead to them interacting more or or just in in like positive ways and keeping each other entertained or maybe they would just antagonize each other i'm not quite sure how that works yet i think it's a real i think it's a real crapshoot but i've thought about that a lot like we have we have these two twin girls who live right across from us um and you know they'll play with my daughter sometimes. And then, you know, in coronavirus, they try and do socially distanced playing. But the challenge is, is that the two twin girls, um, they don't have to socially distance from each other, right? So they're playing dolls, but these two twins get to like, their dolls get to be next to each other. And my daughter has to be six feet away. So it just, it just doesn't work. Um, Yeah. So I've thought about that a lot. Like if I had a second kid, you know, that could be like a a real, you know, lifesaver if they got along, because then they could play with each other. Um, or it could be a real disaster if they didn't get along. Cause then in addition to like a bored kid at home all day, you have two fighting kids at home all day. And so it can go either way. And I don't know if you can really predict. Yeah. So, um, so one other thing that, that I've been thinking about a lot and, and sort of watching with some trepidation is the, the broader cultural and, especially regulatory environment around, you know, non-public schooling and, and even some, some sort of alternative schooling. So sometime last year, for example, I, I came across um, some, I can't remember where they published it. It might've been the Atlantic or New York magazine or something like that. But I, I just became aware of a, a center of scholarship at Harvard, I think, where where they were very, very devoted to basically demonizing homeschool. And I I think it was a lot of people who had grown up in homeschools who, you know, just had a real chip on their shoulder about it and, you know, sort of leveraged that into a career on, um, that, that was devoted to, well, you know, being an expert in why homeschool is bad and we should do as much as we can to disallow it. And, um, you know, as, as someone who's interested in probably not doing something like public school and also, you know, having a lot of latitude to raise my kids as seems maximally beneficial to them rather than, you know, maximally convenient to, to teachers unions or maximally in compliance with whatever, whatever the culture war is dictating at any point in time. That was, that was pretty concerning to me. Um, but also it's not something that I've been paying attention to full time. And, and I'm curious what you've seen and, sort of what your perceptions are in, in this, just, just the 
continued existence of a space to do something that's not, you know, sending your kids to the default option? So my sense, my rough sense, so I haven't heard much from these people since they were trying to put on that conference about a year ago. Um, and I, I remember that, but my sense is that COVID really like threw a wrench in these people's plans in that, in, in a couple of ways. One, uh, all the teachers not wanting to open schools uh, is making people much less sympathetic towards teachers and towards schools. Two, all the sort of poorly executed uh, virtual schooling has also made people not really inclined towards, uh, you know, being charitable towards those schools. And the third, and I don't have any stats on this, it's just kind of anecdotal, but I think that um, people experiencing this uh, hopefully will say, gosh, my kid's sitting in front of a computer all day and it's a complete waste of time. My kid's miserable. They're not learning anything. It's such a waste. And, you know, my hope is that people will say, okay, why don't I not do that? Right. I mean, uh, why don't I just pull them out and not make them sit in front of a screen all day and I'll figure out how to get them something valuable going on because what the schools are offering me sucks. And so let me try something different. And so if I had to guess, and again, I don't have any stats on this, but my guess is that when we kind of come up for air from COVID, you'll probably see uh, a big uptick in homeschooling from people who tried it uh, during COVID and liked it. That's my guess. Uh, but I'm yeah. wrong. Yeah. Fingers crossed. And, I guess I guess homeschooling is a bit different than 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 the unschooling that we've been talking about so far. And so so you know you guys you guys both work. Um, if if you weren't both working, is that something that you would consider, or, or does it seem to have have some disadvantages relative to you know relative to what you're doing right now? Are you asking if we would consider more structured homeschooling? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I, I guess okay. So yeah, what you're doing right now does seem like kind of a does seem like homeschooling already sort of well i mean unschooling is a flavor of homeschooling right so homeschooling yeah. is, a, is a real continuum that really encompasses what we do uh which is you know our kid can do what she wants most of the time modulo a couple i make her do math for an hour a day um all the way up to someone who like sets up a classroom in their house and lectures and gives tests and you know it, it it's a real continuum it's not like homeschooling or unschooling there's just a lot of different ways to do it i think what would happen if one of us were not working is that we would not um it would look different i don't think it would look like a traditional school at our house but it would involve a lot more, let's say, out of the house activities. So a lot of going to meetups with other unschoolers, a lot of kind of field trip type things. Oh, you want to know how paper is made? Let's go to the paper factory and like, you know, climb the fence and try not to get arrested and stuff like that. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I think there's a lot of room for stuff like that um, if you have a parent who can really devote the time and energy to it. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's interesting. Um, I mean, we, you know, it's, it's still very early days for us and it's going to be years until we have to make a, a real decision about, you know, what we're going to do. But, um, it's, I, I don't know. I, I, I guess there, there are some aspects of that that are appealing, but one thing that I'm taking away from this conversation is that there's probably a lot of variation from, from kid to kid. And I mean, apart from all the other circumstances that, that vary across families and maybe it's best to not, really pre-commit until we have a better sense of who our daughter is even going to be. Oh, for sure. Um, but you know, most likely she'll be 
somewhat like you and somewhat like your wife. So, yeah. <laughs> um, I guess the, the other, it seems like one, one thing that's maybe a real, I mean, at least it's a common criticism of, of homeschooling, unschooling that, that entire space is that kids won't be socialized, whatever that means. If, if they don't go to mainline schools and yeah, I have a bunch of responses to that, but, but I'm curious what you make of it with, you know, with your experience in particular. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, the, the, the joke I like to, to make is, you know, if you don't send your kids to, you know, real school, how will they ever learn what it's like to get duct taped to the bench in the locker room? Um, which that did, that didn't happen to me, but it actually did happen to a, a guy, uh, when I was in gym class. So, wow. um, yeah, it was the kids, kids are mean. Um, we, we, we talk about that a lot. Um, cause kids are mean, but anyway, um, I would say a couple things and, you know, some of this is like the Sudbury party line, which is that, um, the distinctions that we make, uh, between people in normal schooling are kind of unrealistic and in some ways perverse. And what I mean is we're going to take every kid that was born, you know, in this specific 12 month period. And those are the kids that stick together for all 12 years and learn from each other. Um, you know, they have minimal opportunity to interact with, uh, older kids. They have minimal opportunity to interact with younger kids. Uh, they have minimal opportunity to interact with adults other than as authority figures. And, and, and so that's a really kind of weird, perverse kind of socialization. And so what the, what the Sudbury people would tell you is they say, look, we don't, um, we don't do age segregation, right? You could have, uh, you know, a, a five-year-old who's having trouble opening his pudding cup. And so, you know, some 17-year-old kid will come and like help him. Or, you know, maybe the maybe the eight-year-old kid is learning to read. And so the eight-year-old kid will read to the five-year-old kids who can't read yet and things like that. Um, and additionally, they the staff there are, I mean, they're authority figures in some ways, but they're also closer to peers in some ways for better or for worse. And so what you get is you get, um, you get this situation where children are learning to interact, you know, not just with people who are their exact same age, but also, you know, how do I negotiate with younger kids and, you know, maybe mentor them? How do I negotiate with older kids and maybe learn from them? How do I negotiate from adults and like get what I want from them? Um, and, and so I think that kind of socialization is probably a, a lot more valuable and a lot more powerful than the kind of socialization that takes place you know, in a, in a standard public school where we stick all the 10th graders in a room and, you know, let them fight over who's most popular and who's the homecoming queen and things like that. Um, in terms of, you know, unschooling and homeschooling, uh, I think you have to work at it, right? Like uh, you could, if you were one of these awful people that the Harvard folks are concerned about, you know, keep your kid locked in the house all day and never have them meet anyone outside your family. I don't think very many people do that. I think that's a, a real straw man to make homeschooling look bad. But I mean, obviously there must be at least a few people who do it. Um, and so I think you really have to go out of your way to go to, you know, homeschool groups, get your kid on sports teams, do, there are plenty of opportunities for them to interact with other kids. If you, you know, make sure to give them those opportunities. So from that perspective, I, I don't consider it super worrying. And like I said earlier, there's Minecraft servers where they can go on and pseudonymously, you know, interact with other kids and so on and so forth. So there's, there, there's plenty of opportunity if you're intent on getting your kids socialization, they'll get socialization. 
if you live in a neighborhood with other kids, they'll run around and like, you know, throw rocks at dogs and stuff, whatever kids do. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. That's, that's great. I mean, I, this is, I don't mean to be reactionary about it, but when, when I think about what society was like for almost the entirety of human history, I just have this vision of, you know, not, not really strong age cohorting, but just kids interacting with an entire continuum of, of people of different ages. And, you know, I mean, like maybe you were a kid, you got to just, uh, I think it seemed like it was pretty unstructured, um, the, the way that they lived their lives. And so, you know, to varying degrees, I mean, sure. If you were, you know, uh, um, an aristocrat in, in Rome, like you, you would have a pretty orderly day with, um, with your pedagogue leading you around and such. But, you know, for the most part, there, there was a lot of interaction with people of different age groups and, you know, sort of your, your modeling of human behavior wasn't focused on just that really small slice of, of people of a single age. And I, I don't know, I, I think getting cross-generational interactions is probably pretty important for, for learning what society and life is like. Um, so I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, okay. Well, there, there is no time limit here. Um, but I think we've definitely hit on a lot of the things that I was curious about. All of that said is, is there anything that, that you wanted to hold forth about that, that I haven't touched on? Um, there's definitely, you know, this is an area where I don't have much firsthand experience apart from my own life. And I, I always assume that people will have some, some perspective or, or, or just something that they're on about that that's completely invisible to me. The, the, the one thing I'll, I'll tell you, cause I, I tell everyone this, um, is that the most important, so I'm not a person who, who reads parenting books, uh, for the most part, they're not interesting to me. And I, I haven't really read any parenting books. I read a couple maybe, but, or leafed through a couple, but, um, the most important parenting book I know, uh, is Impro by Keith Johnstone. Uh, yeah. which, which is not a book about parenting per se. It's a book about improvisation in the theater, but, you know, when we talked about how did I come up with my heretical um, views on education, I think a lot of them can really be traced back to, to reading that book and the points that he makes about, um, you know, how do kids learn? What distinguishes good teachers from bad teachers? What, what is the experience of school like for a lot of kids? Um, and certainly that book has probably been the most influential book when it comes to how I parent and how I think about schooling. That's really good. I, I bought... I bought Impro a couple of years ago at the prompting of somebody else, and I've not read it yet, although somehow my wife has. Um, good on her. She's in a lot of ways a better person than I am. Um, but that, that's that's really good perspective, and I think maybe once I hit leave, I'm going to sit down and go through that um, excellent canonical and group book. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, there, there's parts about education. There's parts about um, the importance of status and status games and like little kids love status games. It's, it's super delightful for them to play where, you know, the three-year-old is high status and the parent is like low status. And, and so a lot of these things that you read about them as kind of like improv games and things that made their improv performances compelling, um, are also really compelling to kids and kids really enjoy them. So. That's amazing. Okay. Um, well, I was looking forward to having a daughter already, but this, this is only intensified that uh <laughs> that anticipation kids kids are kids are a lot of fun so i mean sample size n equals one but um but yeah they're fun they're you know a pain in the ass they're like little versions of you uh, in in some ways and you know it's cool yeah 
Okay, cool. Well, Joel, thanks so much for coming on. Um, really appreciate it. I, I really, um, I'm, I'm grateful for you taking the time and I hope everyone at least is, um, able to, I don't know it. I, I think how to raise one's kids is, is really something that's at the center of my mind, um, right now for obvious reasons, but it, it seems like an area of, of life in the United States, probably in the industrialized world where, you know, you want to talk about gains from from utility on the margin like this this seems like an area that's vastly underexplored and we've been stuck with a system that is incredibly under optimized for for modern conditions and probably for any conditions for for far too long and and i really hope that we can do better by by the next generation than than we got ourselves you know it's one of my favorite things to talk about and it's like extra joy because um my opinions are both like extremely contrarian and also extremely earnest um which makes it extra fun to you know yeah lecture people <laughs> about them um and you know the the real funny thing is that you know a lot of times i'll talk to people and explain to them about unschooling or sudbury or any of these self-directed kind of educations and they'll listen to me and they'll say that sounds amazing and then i'd be like okay would you ever try that and they're like oh no it's just too weird for them. It's like, um, you know, no one ever got fired for uh, buying IBM. No one ever got called a bad parent for sending their kid to, you know, Seattle prep or whatever the, you know, elite private school is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's actually really interesting. I wonder if, I wonder how important parenting per se was historically and how much that mattered. I mean, I, I remember the, the introduction to, um, the introduction to Talleyrand, uh, a biography by, I want to say Duff Cooper, um, has, has him describing the, the way that nobles in the, in 18th century France were raised. And, you know, it, it wasn't like Rousseau was typical where he just abandoned all of his kids to orphanages as soon as they were born. Um, Rousseau, who famously went on to write a book about child rearing but you know like i guess even even the richest nobles in the land were typically just more or less ignored by their parents so i mean there's got to be some continuum between you know cases like that and and situations where you know parents really view child rearing as their primary responsibility in the world which i think is possibly too much of an overemphasis like like you know even if even if it's the most important thing you can be doing you know, it's certainly not something you can do to the exclusion of everything else, but I don't know. I mean, if, if it, if you feel like raising a child in a good way is your primary responsibility, which I think in some ways it is, if you're doing something as audacious as, you know, creating a life, um, I, I, I wish it were maybe a little bit socially easier by default for parents to be more thoughtful about, you know, things that they could do on the margin to, you know, not not just like a satisfactory job or a job that won't earn them any any reprobation, but you know, actually feasibly increase the quality of life for their kid. So so here here's how I've come to think about it, which is you know you have this big nature nurture debate and how much of the kid is just genes and how much of the kid is you know environment and, and so on. Um, my, my take is as follows: um, kids are born with a strong personality. Like even when a kid is a couple months old, they have a personality and you will see that personality persist throughout their life. Um, so there are some things that 
you probably cannot affect as a parent. Um, at the same time, that personality will sort of be expressed and will grow into like a whole person in the environment that you create for them and with the guidance that you give them. And, and so I think you can recognize here are some aspects of that personality that I think would probably, you know, could use some sanding off of rough edges and maybe we can try and do that. Or here's some, here's some areas where this little person, you know, could stand to be a little bit stronger and maybe I can help push them in that direction a little bit. And so uh, I think parenting probably matters in that sense. And it probably matters differentially, differentially in the sense that some kids are just going to turn out who they are, um, you know, whatever you do. And then some kids are kind of more, let's say neurotic or something, and then they might need more <laughs> uh, guidance or whatever. But the other thing that, that I read once that, that I think is an interesting and, and useful point is that um, whether your like intervention, I don't see interventions, but whether the things you do with your kid really make, uh, really affect those kinds of outcomes. The one thing is for sure that they will affect the relationship that you have with that kid and they will affect how that kid looks back on their relationship with you and on their childhood um, and, and how they perceive their relationship with their parents and their family. Um, and, and so I think just on those grounds, um, it's important to try and, you know, really, really do your best um, because at some point this kid's going to be an adult and you know, ideally you want it to be, this is an adult that I have, you know, a strong relationship with and this deep connection with. And I think that is something that really is a function of how your parenting is and, and, and how your relationship is when they're growing up. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. That's really helpful to think about. I mean, I, man, you talk about nature, nurture and, and that sort of thing. And it's one area where I think social science is maybe not even particularly appropriate in that, you know, usually outcomes that people measure are like, how much do you earn as an adult? And, you know, I, I think it's very difficult to measure quality of life. I think it's very difficult to measure, I, I mean, almost anything of, of genuine import. I mean, like, how would you measure the quality of a relationship between, you know, a parent and adult child? You could sort of do it, but everything seems you know, very... I, I I don't know. It, it's pretty indexical um, to to kind of go the literal banana route for terminology, and you know all all of those things that you mentioned matter to me quite a lot, and they they seem to be very easily affected by the way that that I'm likely to interact with my kids. So yeah, and and like even even in the short run, right? Like this is someone that you have to live with for 18 years at least. So um, yeah, you 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 want that to be a, like a, a positive relationship for those 18 years. You don't want to live with someone who hates you for 18 years. Um, yeah, that would suck. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Cool. Well, um, yeah. So we're we're over an hour, um, and I think that's a pretty good note to end on. Do not put yourself in a situation where you have to live with 18. We live with somebody who hates you for the for an entire 18 year period. Um, something, something we should all aspire to. <laughs> cool. Well, I, I really appreciate you, um, having you on and, uh, I hope, I hope everyone who's, I don't know, especially people who are considering having kids, um, can, can kind of cogitate on, on some of this and, you know, maybe, maybe make some, some incremental increase in the quality of, you know, your kid's life and, and the relationship with your kid. Yeah. And if you're on the fence about having kids, you should do it. It's fun. Yeah, totally have kids, please. I, you know, I don't even have one out yet and, and it's, it's been the best, probably the best thing I've done with my life. So 
Ah, okay, cool. Um, take care, everyone. And, and once again, thanks so much for coming on, Joel. All right. Thank you.